So, good morning. It's good to see everyone this morning. Thank you for being here. My name is Daryl. I'm a volunteer meditation instructor for Columbus KTC. And um, on Sunday mornings, when Lama Kathy is away, our talks are devoted to selected Dharma books. And this morning, we're continuing our discussion of the seven points of mind training by the venerable Kenshin Trangu Rinpoche. Um, this book is a commentary on the seven points of mind training by Jamgen Control with translation by Ken McLeod. Our book is a book like this. It's another commentary on the seven points of mind training by Trangu Rinpoche. Um, so the seven points of mind training is a Mahayana manual of practice. And very simply, it tells us how to develop loving kindness and compassion and how to develop wisdom. Uh, very briefly, it tells us how to achieve Buddhahood. And it gives instructions on how to practice on the cushion and how to practice off the cushion. The author, Tranga Rinpoche, is an eminent scholar and a meditation master in the Karmakaju lineage, which, of course, is our tradition here at Columbus KTC. So the sources of the mind training teachings uh, in this book or the very similar book that we're discussing. The teachings come from the sutras, the words of the Buddha, the historical Buddha, Shakyamuni, or, and I should say, they come from the shastras, which are the commentaries on the Buddha's words. And these mind training teachings were collected and condensed by an 11th century Indian master named Atisha. Now, as we've seen in previous Sunday discussions, the first of the seven points of mind training is referred to as the preliminaries. And the preliminaries prepare us to be a fit container for the main practice. The preliminaries consist of taking refuge, guru yoga, contemplation of the four thoughts, and breath meditation. So we begin with the first point or topic of mind training, the preliminaries. Then we move on to the main practice, which is the second point or topic of mind training. The main practice consists of two parts. These are ultimate bodhicitta and relative bodhicitta. Bodhicitta is a Sanskrit word that means mind of awakening. And so this is a mind that aspires to attain enlightenment in order to establish all sentient beings without exception in lasting happiness. Now, in our previous discussions, we've seen how the practice of ultimate bodhicitta or wisdom begins with 
analytical meditation. Analytical meditation is a process in which we look, we look clearly at the mind, at thoughts, at the thinker, and we experience a not finding. And then this is followed by placement meditation in which we simply rest in simplicity and clarity. And you could say we rest in Buddha nature. Now, the last time, uh, last Sunday, we talked about the main practice of relative bodhicitta, or loving kindness and compassion. And what we saw was that relative bodhicitta, the practice, consists of sending and receiving, or tonglen. And we also saw that we practice sending and receiving in meditation, on the cushion, and in post-meditation, off the cushion. So that was the second point of mind training. So that brings us up to speed now this morning. We're going to talk about the third point or topic of mind training. And this is transformation of adverse circumstances or conditions into the path of awakening. So before we get started, let's follow our tradition of chanting together the short prayer of refuge and bodhicitta. In this prayer, we do a couple things. First of all, we generate the wish to liberate all beings from suffering and establish them in happiness. And second, we take refuge. We take refuge in the Buddha, the source of the teachings, or we could say awareness. We take refuge in the Dharma, the teachings themselves, or we could say truth. And we take refuge in the Sangha, the community of followers of the teachings, or we could say love and compassion. If you don't know this prayer, that's okay. Just join us in your heart, thinking that we're going to listen to the teachings, contemplate them, and bring them into our meditation and our life in order to benefit others as much as possible. Sanje chodang soki choknam la jang chu bardu dagni kyapsu chi dagi jin so chi pe sonam ki dro la ha pen cheer sanje dru par sanje chadang so ki chagnam la jang chu par du dakni kyapsu chi Taki jin so chi pe sonam ki dro la ha pin cheer sanje dru sanje chadang so ki chodnam la Jang chu bardu dagni kyapsu chi dagi jin so chi pe sonam ki 
Drola hapen shir Okay, thank you. So, as we said, our topic this morning is transforming adverse conditions into the path of awakening. So, what we're talking about is turning difficulties into the path of Dharma. And um, as we've seen previously in our text, the instructions for practice are presented in brief slogans. So, we have these little uh, summaries of instruction. And so, our first slogan for this morning is, when the world is filled with negativity, transform adverse conditions into the path of awakening. So, this slogan is telling us what to do when we encounter the difficulties of daily life. So, for example, we might be surprised by a sudden illness. And at difficult times like this, we might stop practicing. But the text is saying we have to learn to transform even very difficult, unwanted circumstances into the path to enlightenment. And the text presents us with three ways of doing this. First, we can practice relying on relative bodhicitta, or loving kindness and compassion. Second, we can practice relying on ultimate bodhicitta, or, in other words, relying on insight or wisdom, or seeing things the way they really are. And then the third uh, approach would be to rely on special practices. And so today we're going to talk about the first of these options, which is relying on relative bodhicitta, or love and compassion. So there are two ways to rely on relative bodhicitta when we encounter trouble and difficult circumstances. And the first way to do this is to reduce our self-clinging, our self-cherishing. And the second way is to increase our appreciation of others. And this actually uh, brings us to our next slogan. And the slogan is, drive all blame into one. Now, Tranga Rinpoche says that when something bad happens to us, we usually, we customarily blame other people and things that are outside ourselves. So, for example, when someone hurts us or insults us, we think, expletive deleted, I didn't do anything wrong, but I'm being treated so unfairly. So that's the way we normally think. But when we practice mind training, we actually make an effort to do the exact opposite. And what this means is we remind ourselves that the problem is actually our own 
self-cherishing or self-clinging. Trungpa Rinpoche explains that selfishness, our preoccupation with ourself, is anchored in the belief that I exist. And he says this belief is actually the main cause of our unhappiness and suffering. And this, this really, if we think about it, is simply the second noble truth, that suffering is caused by self-clinging. And what happens is that our afflictive emotions, all the painful emotions that we feel in difficult situations, gain traction because we think that I or me is so special. In fact, we often think that we're the most important person in the world. But of course, if we think about it, we're actually just one person among literally billions. Trungpa Rinpoche goes on to say that we might think that this kind of self-cherishing that we feel is an intrinsic component of our being. In other words, it's part of who we really are. And that, that's what we tend to think is, well, it's natural. It's, it's just the way it is. But the teachings say, no, that's not how it is. And Trungpa Rinpoche is very explicit. He says, this self-cherishing is just a thought that comes up. It's just a thought that arises. And this is why we can get rid of it. So, uh, again, we're talking about uh, the, well, here we're talking about the second and third noble truths. Suffering is caused by clinging, and there's an end to suffering, and that's letting go of clinging. So we can let go of this thought of self-cherishing. Trungpa Rinpoche tells a really great story about the renowned teacher Patrol Rinpoche. And the story goes that Patrol Rinpoche was traveling from Kham in eastern Tibet to uh, central Tibet, where he intended to make a whole lot of offerings. And in order to make all these offerings, he was carrying a whole lot of money. And he and his servant were traveling alone across a vast desert that was notorious for its thieves and robbers. And at night, the two travelers couldn't sleep because they were so afraid that someone was going to steal all their money. And during the day, they were exhausted, both from not sleeping and because they had to remain on alert constantly every moment, wondering where trouble might come from. So one day, Patrol Rinpoche thought, this trip is just so hard and miserable. And then he, he wondered, he asked himself, what is it about this trip that is making it so hard? And he thought, well, if we could sleep at night and we didn't have to constantly watch for thieves during the day, 
we'd feel a whole lot better. And then Patro Rinpoche sort of came to the realization that it's so simple. All this money that we're worried about is the cause of all, all of our trouble. So I'm going to get rid of it. So he threw the money into the river. And then he thought, oh, that's great. It's gone now. I'm really happy. And he told his servant, we don't have to worry anymore. He said, the thieves and robbers are in the water. And the servant said, what do you mean the thieves and robbers are in the water? The thieves and robbers are everywhere. And Patro Rinpoche said, no, 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 I threw the money in the river. And that was the real source of our problem. So this story is meant to illustrate how the problem wasn't, well, in this case, it wasn't external thieves and robbers. Instead, the problem in this case was internal attachment to money. So more generally, the point of all this is that we think our problems come from outside of us, but really, the problem is actually our internal attachment. And now we have to pause to, to make something clear, which is we're not saying that the thieves and robbers in the desert were a figment of imagination for Patro Rinpoche. They're really there. We're not saying they don't exist. And likewise, we're not saying that our problems are unreal um, because we suffer from the problems. So they have some kind of reality. But what we are saying is that our personal experience of our problems, that's not, that's not real. So our fundamental problem is we're attached to a seemingly solid self that is actually empty. It's empty of inherent existence. And the idea here is that for this self that we all cling to, for it to be real, for it to have fit the definition of reality, um, it has to have four characteristics. It has to be permanent. It has to be unchanging. It has to be unitary. And it has to be independent. But in actuality, the self that we cling to is impermanent, constantly changing, made of many, many parts, and interdependent. So this means the self has no true, solid, inherent existence. But again, we're not saying it doesn't have some kind of existence. What we're saying is that the existence it has is completely open, flexible, and workable. But we do insist that on making the mistake that the self has real existence. At the same time, when we think about it, real, true, inherent existence is an imaginary state. It's one that actually 
hasn't been found, that doesn't exist. Trunga Rinpoche goes on to quote Shantideva, the great um, master, who said, whatever harm, fear, and suffering there are in the world comes from taking the self to be real. This is such a great demon. What will it do to me, this clinging to a self? And of course, this is the second noble truth again. And the answer what will, to what will it do to me is it'll do everything to us. And Trunga Rinpoche says, the answer is that the demon has to be tamed. The demon of believing the ego to be real has to be subdued. So, as we said earlier, there are two ways to rely on relative bodhicitta when we encounter trouble and difficult circumstances. And we just discussed the first way, which is reducing our self-cherishing. Now let's talk about the second way, which is increasing our appreciation of others, our concern for others. Uh, the next slogan in our text is all about this. The slogan says, be grateful to everyone. Tranga Rinpoche says, this means understanding that others actually give us kindness. And, of course, this is easy to understand when people are friendly, agreeable, nice to us. But then again, sometimes people hurt us. They're difficult. They hurt our feelings. They disappoint us. They frustrate us. And at these times, we usually just blame the other person. But Tranga Rinpoche says the approach of mind training is to view these occasions as opportunities to practice. So when people hurt us and make things difficult for us, we can use these times to develop patience, tolerance, and compassion. So this slogan really is telling us that difficult people are actually kind to us. And that's because they're giving us an opportunity to practice. So the slogan is telling us to acknowledge within ourselves this kindness. We need to appreciate this kindness. So Tranga Rinpoche goes on to quote Shantideva. Shantideva said, If the road is covered with rocks and thorns, you can either pave the entire road with leather or you can take a piece of leather and place it on the soles of your feet. So, in other words, the world is filled with suffering that we can't possibly avoid by eliminating every obstacle, every difficulty, every problem. It's, it would just be impossible for us to do this. But what we can do is protect ourselves from all of these obstacles, difficulties, troubles, by letting go of self-clinging. So letting go of self-clinging is like taking a piece of leather and covering the soles of our feet, rather than covering the whole world with leather. Trunga Rinpoche concludes this part of the discussion with another quote from Shantideva. Shantideva said, all the suffering and bad things that happen in the world 
come from this clinging to a self. So when we practice bringing adverse conditions onto the path by relying on relative bodhicitta, um, we do this in two ways. We do this by decreasing our self-clinging and by increasing our concern for others. Now, um, all of that sounds really nice, but um, how the heck do we do that? From our normal point of view, um, these instructions are backwards. They're counterintuitive, they're wrongheaded, they're um, even ridiculous. And um, we have to be honest, we, we really think that if anything needs to change, it's that our, our partners, our family members, our friends, our bosses, our Sangha members, our acquaintances, they need to simply treat us with more regard and more respect. They need to do a better job of um, acknowledging us and satisfying our needs and desires. I mean, this is really what we think. But the teachings are saying, wait a second, there are always going to be difficulties. So really, even if we could get everyone to treat us the way we really would like to be treated, there are still going to be difficulties. And the real problem is our habitual reactions to these difficulties. So what we're saying is that we think the problem is the difficulties, but the real problem is our personal experience of the difficulties. So our personal experience, our personal reactions are what is the problem. And really, our reactions simply make everything worse. We have painful feelings, painful internal feelings, because of our self-clinging. And these painful feelings, as we've been saying, are all bound up in our self-obsession, our obsession with I, me, and mine. And we can see for ourselves that the more intense our self-clinging is, then the more intense our suffering is. So, the answer to our problem isn't shutting down or getting numb or repressing or denying our difficulties or our emotional reactions, our painful internal feelings. It's not about doing that. We don't shut down. We don't get numb. We don't repress. We don't deny. When we have problems, we don't say, oh, well, they're not real and I'm not real, and then just kind of ignore them. I mean, that doesn't help at all. <clears throat> Actually, what we do, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> instead of shutting down, <clears throat> instead of shutting down, the answer is that we have to open up. 
And what this means is that we give ourselves the space to take a step back from our reactivity. So we really give ourselves space to um, see, look at the situation, see how things really are, see what's really happening within us. We see for ourselves that our painful feelings are based on our clinging. So what are we saying here? What we're really saying is that we bring the skills and habits of our daily meditation practice into our difficult situation. And more fundamentally, what we're saying is that the answer to transforming difficult situations is to have a daily meditation practice um, if we don't have one to establish one. Out of a daily habit of practice, we generate two elements that are crucial to dealing with difficult circumstances. So in our meditation, we need to establish and experience shamatha or calm abiding or tranquility. And we also need to give rise to insight in our meditation. So in other words, we need to be able to actually, in our meditation practice, rest in our own innate peace and equanimity and awareness. Kempo Rinpoche uh, sums this up very nicely. He says, we need a mind that's calm and gentle. And we also, as I said, we need not only shamatha, but we also need insight. And this means we need to see that our mind, see for ourselves, that our mind is vast and spacious like the sky. And we need to see that there's room in the sky for bad weather, for storm clouds, for difficulties, for trouble, for unwanted circumstances, for whatever it may be, chronic illness, um, deep disappointment. There is room for all of that. And these storm clouds, the bad weather, doesn't hurt the sky at all. So what we're saying is our situation is actually, if we can open up, we will see that our situation is open and workable and that we actually can transform negatives into positives. And so this is the result of daily practice. This is what daily practice is for. Um, this is where we get the skills that we need. So what we've been talking about today sounds, um, again, kind of ridiculous, but through a habit of daily practice, this actually becomes doable. So um, let's take a few minutes to um, do a guided meditation together. Let's begin by relaxing and settling our body and mind. And we can do this by simply um, taking a nice deep breath, breathing way down into the abdomen, and then just letting it out. And as we let it out, we can just mentally follow our breath as it dissipates into space. We can do this a couple times.
Now, um, breathing normally, let's place our attention on the breath. When we breathe in, we follow the breath. When we breathe out, we follow the breath. So we know when we're breathing in and we know when we're breathing out. Our attention follows the breath as we breathe in and out. Next, when we exhale, let's imagine sending all our happiness and positive karma to all sentient beings. When we inhale, let's imagine we're receiving the unhappiness and negative karma of all beings and they're being relieved of it. As this negativity merges with us, we imagine it dissolves into nothing. So let's practice sending and receiving like this for a few minutes. Finally, let's let go of the visualization, completely relax, and simply rest the attention in awareness and spaciousness. So we have a few minutes for questions. Uh, if anyone has a question, um, please uh, use the microphone so everyone can hear. Thanks, Darrell. Do you hear me? Yes? Um, so I try to make my question clear, uh, despite my English. Thanks, Juan. So um, what you said today uh, strikes me a lot. Um, I have a question. I hope it's a genuine question. Uh, it's really a problem for me. Um, you say, okay, you're clinging to yourself, and you want you desire, you will to be done by all the people around you. And you would like that they treat you the way you actually want them to treat you. So I completely understand how you can let it go, how you can uh, refrain from self-clinging about that. But when it comes like to brutal acts, like to, I would like to make some like kind of difference between like the type of aggression that you can take from others. Uh, I mean, it's very different to be um, like somebody stole your purse or somebody says something bad to you. It's, it's okay, but I mean, it's okay. But when somebody like really hurt you, like, like a threat for your life, there is something kind of, uh, there is a kind of a contradiction to my mind because you have to protect the self that was given to you in a way. So there is really a true contradiction for me. My mind can't get over it because you still have to cling to yourself, which is the pure essence that was given. So you, you have, you, at, the, at the same time, you don't have to self-clinging and you have to a little bit because you have to respect the person you are the same way that you respect all other beings. 
because you're one being yeah. too. Yeah, that's, yes. So yeah. this is really a contradiction, contradiction to me. Okay, that's a great question, and you know the 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 issue here is that we're not saying that um, we don't take care of ourselves. We're not saying we don't protect ourselves. We're not saying that we don't. Um, I mean, if there's something we can say or do. In, that is a skillful response to whatever the extreme situation is, then, of course, we need to say and do that. So we're not talking about turning ourselves into, you know, a doormat or anything of the kind at all. What this teaching is focused on is our inner experience. It's what you say is very true, I, that... Um, Yes, we do have to. It's only right that we take care of ourselves, that we respect ourselves. We're being asked to respect others, be concerned for others, appreciate others. So, of course, we, we should be included in that group, of course. But this is all about our inner experience. And it's acknowledging that so much of our suffering is based on an inner experience that is caused by extreme self-absorption, self-obsession, self-clinging, self-cherishing. And that if we can loosen that, if we can let go a little bit, then our suffering will let go a little bit. So, and we can see this in sort of mundane ways in, in our daily life. We've all seen how when we um, do something, when we sort of set aside our own preoccupation for a moment and just do something really nice for someone else, something generous or kind or thoughtful, um, we feel really good afterwards. And part of that good feeling is that, yes, we've done something beneficial and nice for someone else. But part of that good feeling is that for a moment we've forgotten about I, me, and mine. And so it's kind of like that. So this is all about our personal experience of outer conditions and how we can use the skills of meditation to modify that personal experience in a way that's healthy, helpful, constructive, um, that relieves our painful feelings, that gives us more space to react to situations more skillfully. Um, and really, the, the, um, what we're looking for in our meditation is sort of the point where there is enough of a gap between our thoughts, there's enough space around our thoughts where we can really begin to clue into the transparency of our thoughts and ultimately of our self-image. And where, when that happens, when that opens up, then that is where we begin to make a difference and where a couple things happen. We just naturally let go of our clinging so tightly and we also um, naturally uh, manifest compassion for others because we 
we sort of see more clearly how things are, that there's really little difference between us and others. We all want to be happy. We not, None of us want to suffer. And so that's kind of what we're, that's our, our first um, uh, gate into the process of this um, practice that we're talking about here today. So it has to happen in our meditation, first of all, really. Um, that's where we, that's how we can help ourselves make this a reality instead of a ridiculous instruction, really. Um, so meditation, daily meditation is, is what's going to do this for us. And um, uh, to do it the other way around, to try to do it without meditation, um, we're likely just fooling ourselves. We're, we're not, our progress isn't going to be very good because we need to see for ourselves. We need to establish calm, calm abiding, and then we need to see how our mind is, how our self really is, and, and then we can make progress. Thanks for that great question. Hey, Daryl. Arvin. I'm not going to be ornery today. What's that? I said I'm not going to be ornery today. <laughs> uh, I mean, a lot of your comments are um, seem to be geared toward more for folks you know, I'm looking at this kind of... Uh, kind I'm, of I'm having trouble hearing you, Arvin. Can you stand closer to the mic? Yes. Um, uh, it seems like a lot of your comments today, uh, commentary on, on the reading, are geared more toward folks. You know, you know, if we're looking at kind of a spectrum here, um, folks who are kind of more geared, more outwardly looking at their you know, experiences, you know, as far as blaming others, that kind of thing. And, and I guess what my question to you is, you know, and I mean, I kind of know the answer to some of this, but I'd like to hear your, you know, okay. your thoughts on it. Um, you know, more for folks, I would put myself in this demographic who have a tendency to kind of uh, turn inward and blame themselves. Sure. Um, I have a tendency to uh, gauge other people's ambivalence or ineptitude as a as a measurement of my own, you know, value, um, and uh, so I I tend to see I have a tendency when I look at situations, you know, I turn it inwards, you know, as a you know blame myself or get angry at myself or even get abusive toward myself. Right. Um, I mean, not like I used to. I mean, you know, uh -huh. I've cultivated a little compassion for myself, um, but I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Well, you know, it's it's the very same. I mean, it's the very same answer, really. Mm -hmm. That whether we turn our uh, our aggression outward or inward, mm -hmm. it's it's the same. It's the same aggression. It's the same uh, afflictive emotion. And Are there any? I'm sorry, it, I didn't mean to interrupt. Are there any specific things that come to mind? Like maybe, I mean, you told the story of Patrol. Bichet, are there any specific like you know stories or anything about that? I what what I'm thinking is that really what we're talking about is stepping back from reactivity, 
Right. And reactivity, you know, takes any number of shapes, and you've identified one that is is a big one for a lot of people. Sure. But whatever whatever that reactivity is, what we're talking about is in our meditation practice, giving ourselves space so that we can step back from that reactivity so that we don't have to get caught up in it. Um, and so that we have the, the time to make another choice, to make a more, um, a more kind, compassionate choice. Um, and as, you know, as, as your suggestion implies, I mean, we, and I think as we were saying in the previous, you know, with the previous question, we deserve compassion as much as everybody else. Um, so, but again, what we're talking about is giving ourselves the space to step back from our reactivity. Gotcha. Okay. Cool. I, I hope that helps. A little bit. So, okay. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Just, just say. Yeah. Thank you, Daryl. Um, another great, insightful teaching this morning. Um, I wanted to add a little bit on to the other question that was earlier because I was caught up in the same sort of conundrum about, you know, letting go versus a genuine, authentic way, uh, necessity for us to protect ourselves. So there has got to be some middle way between. Um, walking through uh, traffic and thinking a car can never hit us because it's imaginary, it's very imaginary, um, and protecting ourselves in, a, in a, uh, an appropriate way and not letting go to the other extreme where we become, and I think maybe you said a long time ago about Kim MacArthur saying we can get to the point where we become afraid of being afraid and that feeds upon itself. So um, my cat Jackson taught me a great lesson. Jackson was uh, a, a cat we got from a pet store, and I think he was raised from a kitten to be in a cage. It hardly maybe ever been out of a cage, separated from his mother very early, I believe, and was put uh, sort of on the floor level of a stack of cages where people could poke at him. So he had no escape from all of that. I think as a result of that, he became um, uh, traumatized. And a couple of things were apparent to me as we got him home. Uh, one was, first of all, he didn't know how to play. When he played with our other cat, Cassie, he was not play hunting as kittens do. He was really hunting. And he had the claws to show it. But the strangest thing about him was that he was so skittish that any time there was a noise, he ran. Any time there was a sudden movement, he ran. Sadly, he did that all of his life, and we had him for about 14 or 15 years. Never got past him. He could get somewhat comfortable in Diane's arms, uh, or more comfortably with women than men, I think. But it began to become uh, to dawn on me is why is it that he's running when there's no danger? We never never gave him any reason to feel that he was ever in danger. We did everything exactly the opposite. And so I thought about that for a long time, and I thought, you know, we kind of do the same thing. In psychology, I don't see the word anymore neuroticism in most psych books. I don't know what happened to it. I suspect that uh, 
became more and more difficult to, dis to distinguish between, quote, normal behavior and, quote, neurotic behavior. But as I thought about Jackson's behavior, I thought, well, there's you know, a good case for neuroticism here. He's running from danger that isn't there. He's running from what he perceives as danger and his perceptions he's throwing on the world. So to me, it seems that um, looking at these things, well, and one of the things you said I think is really important is how reactionary we are at certain things, how we may react without thought and how in some cases you can almost see some of these buttons getting pushed and there's an immediate reaction. And if we can somehow create a space between that thing that arouses us, maybe the neuroticism in us, the thing that arouses us and the behavior we do as a result of that, we can make some real progress. Mm -hmm. And so we can learn to see things as they are, which has a different level of survivability or non-survivability than our imagination creates. A second example I'll give, which I use with my students, is simple. In these days and times, there's an awful lot in the media that is designed and intended to frighten us. It doesn't quite happen so much anymore, but for a long time, if there was a plane crash, what you would see on the 6 o'clock news was how crowded our skies are how we have to fix this broken airspace system and so forth. And I would say to my students, this is kind of stimulating this neuroticism I'm talking about to make us afraid of being afraid. The solution in this case is just to go outside and look up at the sky. There are not planes falling out of the sky. In fact, being in that moment and looking in the sky is a whole different experience than what is being stimulated in our mind in terms of fear, fearfulness and so forth. And so meditation, and I think slowing things down and seeing the reality will help us get through that knot that says, well, you know, I'm designed to protect myself, but sometimes I protect myself against what my imagination is generating rather than what's really there. And I think that's a, that's a good point to think about because I wish I could remember the exact words you or whoever said by Kevin Carter that basically we stimulate our own fears we can catch ourselves doing that, then we can do something about it. And find what it is we really have to protect ourselves in an authentic way rather than chasing ghosts of our own mind. Thanks for those comments, Rich. Thank you. This will be the last. Do you have a question? Yeah, this will be the last. Um, so I, I was seeing how you were saying that, like, everything. Well, how everything is kind of just like your mind, right? And how like you're really awareness. So I had like a question. So I know like the key of this Buddhism is love and compassion. So I was gonna ask, do you think it'd be appropriate to experiment with your significant other? Meaning by stop appreciating them for the things that you like them for, like say the way they touch you or the way they smell or talk or so on and so forth, but instead loving them for their awareness just like you are and therefore using that to have more patience and love others, would that be something that would be able to work or would that be just too weird? Um. 
I'm not sure I understand your question. Using my significant other as a tool to have more compassion for others. Okay. Well, you know, I, if I may not be following your question, but if I am, um, the 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 way we um, the way Jamgen Control uh, instructs us to practice sending and receiving is to begin with by generating love and compassion by thinking of our mother or someone who has loved us and cared for us in a, a relatively selfless way. And so that's that would be a perfectly, um, you know, uh, acceptable and skillful way to go. Wait, so you said to, so, you said I, to go in her memory and think of like a mother, how she cared for you? Oh, uh, so for example, if you want to generate love and compassion to extend to others in general, one would begin by generating love and compassion for one's mother or for someone dear to one. Um, and the, the point here is that it's someone that very quickly and easily elicits the, the um, feeling of love and compassion. And then we just gradually expand that, extend that to others. Does, am I responding to your yeah, question? Maybe I'll, I'll phrase it weirdly or strangely, so thank you. Okay, thanks. Thank you very much. Well, um, we're out of time here, but um, thank you very much for your um, interest and attention. Really appreciate your being here. And let's take a moment to uh, silently dedicate the merit. Through our being here, listening to the teachings, contemplating them, and practicing, may we generate a sincere aspiration to tame the mind, wake up, and liberate others. May we establish and maintain a daily meditation practice. May our daily practice lead us to complete Buddhahood. And having attained Buddhahood, may we manifest in order to guide all beings to liberation from suffering.